Good morning, everyone. Pastor is returning to the same set of verses that we looked at last week in Romans chapter 11. Uh, This morning it's verses 19 through 24, and we're looking again at uh, uh, Paul's reference to the fig tree and, or the olive tree and the branches with reference to his sovereignty to the Gentiles and Israel. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell, severity but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not, still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou were cut off, the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Let's pray together. Our Father, we are taught in your word that man is as grass, and the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And it's by that word that we are being saved. I pray that we would never forget it. I pray that you would continue the work and indeed complete the work that you began in us, keeping us always and wholly dependent upon you, keeping us free from pride or any thought of self-sufficiency or any boast in ourselves or any boast in our tradition, our family, Lord, we boast only in the Lord. I pray that we would then, in that way, enjoy the sweetness of the assurance of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm certain that some of you last week were concerned with some of the language from our text. and The text that Brother Jim just read, the one that we considered last week in some detail, And some of you may have been shocked and perhaps felt a bit uncomfortable, moved in your pew that sometimes becomes too comfortable for us, by the way. The Word of God should do that to us periodically. The way the Spirit works, one of the ways is through conviction. And it's a good thing to be convinced and to be convicted of the truth. And this is what we read. Then you will say, Romans eleven nineteen, you Gentiles in this gracious standing now, you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Indeed, some of you might have taken the apostles' admonition, you could say, literally, seriously, and indeed realize that it's a good place to be in fear when God tells us to do so. Do not become proud, he says, but fear. What we have just considered in these verses last week, I don't know if you realized it, was the cutting off of what God called in Deuteronomy chapter 7, his chosen people, Israel, whom he said of them, I didn't choose you because you were of greater number or had the most handsome men or the most beautiful women or the most intelligence. I didn't choose you for any earthly purpose at all. I chose you because I chose you. I loved you because I loved you. Nothing in them compelled God to choose them. And it's that people whom he has just said have been broken off. And we know that means in general, we know that means in the mass majority of the people of Israel, even to this day, they are unbelieving, they are not in the covenant that God has made with sinners through the blood of his Son. And so they are broken off from the root of spiritual blessing in this analogy. And he says this, and this is why he says, but fear, because he says this, and so will you be broken off, unless you stand fast through faith, verse 20. Now, one of the most encouraging, and I believe a doctrine that we ought to preach, and I believe a doctrine that we ought to pursue to have established in our souls is the assurance, the doctrine of the assurance of our salvation. It is one of the most comforting doctrines. If you're a Christian and you know what it's like to be a Christian without experiencing that, which is perfectly plausible and possible, then you know how great it is to be in a place that you are comforted by the assurance of your salvation. This doctrine is also often mistaught and misunderstood, and dangerously so. And the question that comes to us in light of what I've just brought up here, is Paul teaching that God's people can be broken off from the promises and spiritual benefits that come to them through the patriarchs, and indeed through Christ. And Yet I find that even in the way that I ask such a question, we need to go back and examine exactly what we mean in light of this analogy that the Apostle uses. We need to examine what is first revealed in this analogy. There is a root of spiritual blessing in which Israel has been broken off. And we know from the context, this is all of Israel except for a small remnant But Paul generalizes Israel and says, they have been broken off, and in which now the Gentiles in majority make up the people that have been grafted into this tree in this age. 
So as you look at God's people in this age, we see far more Gentiles residing in this tree, in the root, which we'll talk about more, than do Israelites. And I argued last week that the root refers to the patriarchs and probably indicates a covenantal relationship to God. God indeed relates to mankind, to sinners, and even throughout the covenants of history, even all the way back to Adam, he relates to mankind through covenants. Theologically speaking, I believe Christ is the fulfillment of every covenant that God has made with man. He is the new Adam. He is the promise. He is the fulfillment of the promise that God will indeed not destroy man that God gave to Noah. Indeed, he is further than that. He is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the only one who fulfills the law. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And so on. And so through his blood, we find that in the new covenant, he is the mediator of that lasting and final covenant that God makes with man. So this root refers to the patriarch, patriarchs, and yet I believe that Christ is the life of the whole tree. And indeed, the tree defines and is an analogy of the history of redemption. And therefore, we can say when we looked back at Galatians 3, 27 through 29, therefore, once we were Jews and Gentiles, we are united to Christ through his body and blood. Those temporal distinctions and divisions break down. And we, in fact, are united into one root, into one tree, and necessarily are in union with one God, one family, one body, one temple of the living God unto one eternal inheritance. Even what was promised to Abraham. But secondly, we considered that we Gentiles were grafted in because of Israel's unbelief. And this in no way denies that this happens according to God's Sovereign plan. This happened according to his plan. If we go back and reverse, look at verses 1 through 15, we see that this all is falling out according to his plan. But he said that we were grafted in because of their unbelief. This is the plain fact of the matter of redemptive history. They were broken off, 11 verse 20 says, because of their unbelief. But we... The Gentile people who were grafted in stand fast through faith. And so then he admonishes us and warns us, do not become proud, but fear. Therefore, we need to recognize three things about Paul's analogy of the tree and those who are in it. In light of those two fundamental facts, first, no one is saved outside of the root. There is no salvation outside of being in this root. Nothing less than eternal life comes to those in the tree. And the whole illusion that Paul is referring to connects to everything that he has taught in this portion of Scripture from chapter 9 through chapter 11. He is taught explicitly here 
of the way that God is saving sinners and how they are saved. And he has said that whether they be Jew or Gentile, they have one means of salvation in the purposes of God, and that comes through Jesus Christ and faith through him alone. These are described as not trying to attain their own righteousness through the works of the law. That was how Israel failed of attaining what they sought, that is the righteousness of God. But the way that we attain the righteousness and therefore the salvation which God demonstrates in in chapters 9 through 11 is through the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ alone. And we see really that's the theme of Romans thus far all the way from chapter 1 through chapter 11. In this sense, the allegory can be related to Christ's allegory himself that he spoke about in John chapter 15 of the vine. The father being the vine dresser and his people being the branches. And so he said there in John 15, 5 and 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And here's what we need to understand. Just like in that analogy, there is no spiritual life outside of the vine. There is no fruit. So outside of the root of this tree in Romans chapter 11, there is no spiritual life. There is no salvation. One cannot escape the reality that if ever we are found not to be in the vine, we are not saved. Second, this vine is covenantal in, covenantal in nature. Therefore, it necessarily has two aspects to it, a spiritual and an earthly aspect to it. And it appears very much like what we read in Scripture. When we read about Israel, God's covenant people of old, and when we read about the new covenant church. This root, or this tree, acts very much like those two people groups that are indeed one spiritually, but outwardly they look very different. And indeed can have very different ends. What do I mean by that? I mean that they may have a very different spiritual life than what they appear to be on the outside. That is, when God makes covenants with man, there is a spiritual and inward component to it, and there are outward components to it. This relates to Paul's plain statement, of course, back in Romans 9, 6, that not all Israel belongs to Israel. We know that there is an outward people called Israel that were the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, and yet he is saying here, and he goes on to elaborate on what he means by not all Israel means they are part of the true Israel when he talks about Isaac being chosen. He's the child of promise. And by that, he means not Ishmael. And he means Jacob is the child of promise, and not Esau. And guess what? Both Ishmael and Esau had the signs of the covenant that God gave first to Abraham, and then he gave again through Moses to the people of Israel. 
the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Both Ishmael and Esau had that sign. And so it's obvious from there, but even more so as we go throughout the Old Testament, that somebody can be numbered within this covenant people, this outward people of God, outwardly speaking, and have no part inwardly with the spiritual people of God. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Who is he speaking about? He says, Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwelt in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised. And then he says, defining who the uncircumcised in heart are, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And what did he say he would do? I will punish those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. These are those of who Jesus said when he came that they were like their fathers who persecuted the prophets before them and put them to death. Why did he say that about them? Because they did not believe in him, the prophet, and they would put him to death circumcised outwardly part of the covenant and inwardly with no circumcision of the heart. And Paul picks up on this in Romans 2, 28 and 29 when he said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. His praise, what he seeks after, is the glory of God, not the glory that comes from men. It's God who makes covenants with men. And in doing so, he's chosen to mark his people, his covenant people, with outward signs and symbols. In the old covenant, circumcision and indeed the law were signs that these people were separated unto God. In the new covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper, in addition to that, our weekly observance of worship under the preaching and authority of the word of God and the way that we live in this world as we are defined as God's people, set apart for his possession, a holy people, and yet a people given to the world with a commission to go into it and be among it, but not of it. By that, we are showing to this world, by taking part of baptism, by taking part of the Lord's Supper, we are demonstrating that we are God's covenant people, and yet of this people, even, Jesus described in Matthew 13, 24 in his parable of the wheat and the tares that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while, he was, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do what you want us, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, but lest the gathering the weeds, you root up the weed also with them. 
Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And Christ's point is that in this age, until his return, there is an intertwining of true believers and false professors growing up together in the same church, in the same outward-looking field, as it were. And here they are, growing up together. And this is what this analogy of this tree takes on. That here you can have a true and abiding and necessary salvation which must come through this, and yet you have at the same time a natural branch. One that appears that it should belong into that tree and is cut off or broken off. Third, biblical assurance of salvation comes through true and lasting faith. We see that in this analogy. This is saving faith. The reason why Israel was cut off from the tree in our context without any discrepancy at all, no argument to be given, was due to the lack of faith. As long as they do not believe in Christ, that is Israel, in whom the whole tree receives life, they have no part in salvation. Remaining in the tree does not rely on outward actions, according to this analogy, or even the received signs of the covenant apart from faith. Rather, If one does all the right things, partakes of all the right signs, has all the best traditions, have all the benefits Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 9, 4, and 5, and does not have faith, there is no part for them in salvation, and they are broken off. The big picture in Paul's analogy is that of God's purposes in redemption to remove Israel from the root and to include the Gentiles into this tree and the root and the source of all the benefits that flow to us. But this happens, listen, according to God's purpose because the faith of Israel failed. And how are we then grafted in but by faith? Remember that the opposite is true. This helps us to remember our position of humility, Gentile believers, so that we do not boast against the wild branches who are at this very time continue to be cut off. Do you boast over Israel in their unbelief right now? The vast majority of Israel still is in unbelief. Do we boast over them? Verses 23 and 24, Paul says, And even they, that is, these unbelieving branches that were cut off. Remember, he's speaking of these people groups here in general. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature in a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, and that's just to say, how much more likely, how much more believable would it be that the natural branches would be grafted back in? And this again goes to prove that Paul is not trying to follow some some cultural, cultivated uh, um, form of, of 
I'm missing the word here, how to cultivate a tree. He's not using the, the arborist language. The scientific definitions are not what he's trying to keep to. He's trying to show that we, outsiders to the covenant, not belonging to this spiritual people of God, have surprisingly been grafted in because Israel was cut off or broken off. And them being the natural branches, which you would not graft natural branches back into a tree after they've been cut off. You see, the analogy is just about the surprise of grace. The analogy is about keeping the people of God humble before God and in fear. And these are the three principles in the analogy, isn't it? No one is saved apart from being grafted into this tree. First, second, the tree is covenantal and therefore false appearances can occur. The natural branches not being truly part of the saving people, the people that will be saved. And three, biblical assurance then is only granted to those who persevere in faith. But we also see here a hindrance to biblical assurance of salvation. And that's pride. Verse 20 says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. And then he doesn't say, but, and then he says, but you stand fast through faith. And so he says, therefore, or so, do not become proud. What does pride have to do with standing fast through faith? And then the opposite of pride is fear. We get the word phobia from this Greek word. What are we to be fearful of? Pride, as it's understood in Scripture, is this self-aggrandizing or an inordinate high view or esteem of the self. And this is a serious and blatant offense to God and is contrary to saving faith and its fruits, love, joy, gratitude. Pride destroys giving of thanks. Indeed, it is always true in God's economy that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I like to watch sports. I like combative sports these days, boxing, MMA. You might think that's grisly and gross. Maybe it is. But you'll watch and some of the most proud and arrogant guys. You just want them to get beat sometimes. And they win. And they win. And they win. I hated the Bulls because Michael Jordan was the best player on the planet. And he would win, and you just knew he wouldn't say as much, but you just knew he knew he was the best. And you wanted, I wanted him to lose. And we sometimes are enticed to think, look at these prideful people. They keep winning and winning and winning. I thought pride goes before the fall. And a haughty spirit before destruction. And here we are waiting on pins and needles before these proud people fall. And you know what? Sometimes in this life, it's the humble that we see fall. It's the meek 
who don't seem to inherit the earth. It's the ones who are downcast and downtrodden, who don't carry themselves with the air of invincibility, who seem to be the ones who don't make it. And so we say in the wisdom of the world, we need to increase our esteem. But not before God, beloved. But not before God. There is no salvation for the proud before God. There is no salvation for the one who boasts in themselves, their righteousness, their abilities, their family, their tradition. Everything that we come to God and boast of before him, their nation, God is not impressed. And this economy will hold true. He resists the proud. He will resist the proud. Oh, but Israel were broken off so that we might be grafted in. Look, look how important we are. See, this is the same sin that Israel themselves were involved in. They began seeing themselves this way. Look how important we are. Isaiah 2. In fact, we'll read, I'll read a few portions of this chapter. Verse 6 through 12 says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. How does that relate to so man is humbled? All their success, all the things they're looking for, all of their riches, all of their well-being. And he says, in this way they are humbled. This is true, yet unrecognized that this is the result of their sin. This is what being brought low looks like. And then he says, strikingly, do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Fear the Lord, in other words. And then he says this, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In verse 17, now verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? What account are we before God? Israel was to be judged because she deemed herself to be what she wasn't. In her slavery to sin, she considered herself free. In her idolatry, she found herself rich. Her pride was in her sin, her self-sufficiency, and idols, all of which, the prophet says, is actually a demonstration of depravity, of lowliness. 
And so her pride, or her shame rather, was in her pride. You see, before God, pride is shame. Pride is depravity. Pride is weakness. And this is exactly what a little bit of outward success will do to a people. Why do we need God when we are so successful? Look at what we can build with our hands today. We are so proud today because of what we have conceived that we have done apart from God and without his help. And this is the same story when Jesus came, but in a different way. Israel, when Jesus came, were not worshiping idols, but they had the same pride as they did back in Isaiah. They sought the same sort of earthly respectability, earthly comfort, you might say, earthly glory, you might add. John 12, 37 through 43, keep reading this text. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That's why they were cut off. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And this is exactly what we read in Romans 9 or Romans 11 7 through 10 Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him nevertheless many even of the authorities believed in him but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue no one wants to be displaced for believing in Jesus that's that's the point for and here's the reason they didn't want to believe, or they wouldn't profess that they believed, or they didn't have true faith, you could argue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Beloved, pride not only goes before the fall, it contradicts faith. Nobody has the right to be assured of their salvation who is not depending on Christ. No one. Don't come to me and said, oh, say, oh, I had, I had an experience 20 years ago. Now I'm doing fine by myself. But I'm just glad that I had that experience 20 years ago because I know I'm saved. I don't need Jesus now, but I did need him and he did a work in me and I'm so happy that I have that experience and now I'm good you have nothing you have a hypocrite's faith that is not true faith faith never boasts in itself it never sees any hope outside of Christ that's what saving faith is and there's no salvation in any other and there's no time where there's a salvation in any other we have been sold a lie for so long, I grew up hearing it sometimes. 
Oh, so-and-so, thankfully he uh, was saved 20 years ago. He doesn't live, he doesn't, he's not a Christian now, but thankfully he's, you know, at least he was converted. And you want to give somebody assurance of their salvation who at one time said that they were saved, claimed to have an experience of faith, and yet now has no evidence at all. Not even a personal profession of faith is wrought in that person. It is to make these people twice the children of hell to say that at some point in your past existence you claim to have an experience, but now you reject Christ or don't care about him or don't need him or don't reverence him or don't fear God, and yet you can be fully assured that you belong to him. Now, I know there's a danger of being too introspective. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? Am I not saved? But if you do not have faith now in Jesus Christ, fear, tremble, seek the Lord while he may be found. You see, the reason why God deems that it's right and only right for us to be humbled and not proud is so that we might be saved. We're always low before God. God who created everything, he doesn't need us to feel low to feel good about himself. But we cannot be saved if we are proud. We will not be saved. And you have no right to be assured of yourself that you are on your way to heaven or have eternal life if you are not now believing. Where would your boasting be? Where would it be if you were not boasting in Christ? Now, where would your confidence come from if you didn't have faith now? What does he say in this text? You say, oh, you know, you're talking about all sorts of other things. What does he say in verse 20? They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand Fast, how? Through faith. Why? Because faith is the only thing that unites us to the one whereby we can be assured that God accept us, accepts us. Christ. Christ is the only means whereby the Father accepts us. And we are only united to him through faith. There is no assurance apart from being a believer in Jesus Christ. But if you believe, I'm not talking about merely, I do believe, let me say this, I believe that new birth experience helps that faith. It encourages that faith. Not everybody has the same new birth experience, but everyone must have a new birth in order to be saved. You must be the elect, part of the elect of God in order to be saved. But looking at yourself in the mirror and telling yourself that you're elect is not the way to be assured of your salvation. Looking unto Jesus is the way that you will be assured of your salvation, your new birth. Your standing is as an elect of God. It's in Christ that we have been chosen, beloved. That's where our assurance lies. 
We stand fast by faith in Christ alone. When we are standing in that faith, we have full reason to be assured that we are in the beloved and he will complete the work that he began in us. That's what he says in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it or bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the end of our faith is the assurance that God grafted us in. We are in this standing by grace. Therefore, we will not boast in ourselves, but boast only in the Lord. And he will save us to the uttermost. Let's pray. Our Father, let us not boast. Let us not boast over Israel by any means. Here is the great point of this text. Their unbelief, even to this day, is not a means of our boasting in ourselves as Gentiles. Boasting that for 2,000 years, the church has been made up of the vast majority of it, of Gentiles. We don't boast in ourselves. We know we stand only by faith. Thank you for the gift of faith and for enabling us to stand We believe that Christ is the author of our faith, and he's the finisher. He's the beginning of it, he's the end of it. And no point along the way are we ever sufficient in ourselves. Lord, and those who are doubting their faith this morning, I pray for their assurance. I pray that they would know that the only way to gain true assurance is not by looking inwardly at themselves, but by looking to Christ. I pray that we would find it there and we would be a church comforted by him in these days and not enticed and not tempted to follow in the pride and the arrogance and the boasting of the world. And we pray these things in the the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.